0: All right, good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning, church. All right, a few quick things. Uh, we have someone getting baptized today. What a celebration, amen. <clears throat> Super excited about that. Someone going public, not ashamed. Telling the world they love Jesus, amen. Let's go. Baptism is going to be at the end. I want to do it now, I'm so excited about it. But we'll wait to the end, all right. A uh, few quick things, I want to welcome you to uh, Summer Point Church, if you're a guest with us today. Thank you for being with us today. Today's a little different. The first Sunday of every month, we do a combined one-service Sunday. So 10 o'clock, we got programs, we got activities for kids up to fifth grade. Typically, we have two services, one at 9, one at 1030, both identical programs all the way to, you know, 12th grade at 9 o'clock. Babies to 12th grade. And then at 1030, we have programs up to 3rd grade, kids worship. And uh, if you have a 4th or 5th grader, maybe they could be a kids worship leader. So um, yes, so that's our, our typical setup. Julie and her team, everyone turn around, wave at Julie and her team. Hey, thank you, Julie. All right. She's getting some food uh, dialed in for us. I think they've got, they're going to have lots of pies for us, right? A lot, a lot of pies. I say we just end the service now and go eat. What do you think? What do you say? Let's just go eat some pie, right? All right. Anybody like pie? I like that word pie. All right. Hey, um, anybody want a book? Raise your hand if you want this book by uh, John Piper, Desiring God, Carlos. Come on down. You get this book. Don't waste your life, my friend. By the way, hey, um, Carlos and his wife Teresa, I'm not going to put you on the spot. But I'm going to put you on the spot. They've been coming to our church Last two months or right. so, right? right. And uh, we had like a two-hour coffee appointment this week. This is Carlos, his wife Teresa somewhere my back mother, there. That's son. your mom, that's your mom. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, there's your book, there's your book. That's his mama. You know what, that's a good son, bringing your mama to church with you. That's what I'm talking about. All right. You never know when everything goes off script what you're going to get. You know, you had a lot of off script. All right, all right here we go. All right, so um, okay, one more thing. I'm just in the mood to promote. I'm a promoter today, I'm promoting. Listen, we want you in the game. The mission of the church is helping people find and follow Jesus. How do you do that? Lots of ways. Our discipleship pathway is about connecting, growing, investing. We want you to connect in worship. We want you to connect in the community group, right? So Sunday morning, it's vertical, right? But in the community groups, it's horizontal. It's one another's. It's growing in your faith. It's uh, nurturing and developing and building friendships, growing spiritually. Right. So that's the connecting piece. Growing is a growing in D groups. That's our D group model. We've sent close to fifty people through the program, and it's gender specific. The twelve-month commitment: uh, men with men, women with women. Twelve months life on life accountability, scripture reading, Bible memorization, just living life together, all right? So we're gonna be, Lord willing, launching um, some new groups at the beginning of the year, okay? The last piece is investing in service and generosity. The generosity piece is not just your wallet or your purse. See, a lot of times we think, oh, generosity is just like the money that I invest in the kingdom. Well, yes, that's a big part of it. But it goes beyond that, right? It's investing your time. It's investing your talents. So important. So we have been working on this little booklet, and it's on our next steps table. And uh, basically what we've done, it's really nice, high gloss, professionally done, right? So if I don't sell you on it, maybe the booklet will sell you on it. But we want you to invest in the lives of other people. The mission of the church, this is one of the ways that you follow Jesus is by joining a team, getting involved, right? Like, I mean, I would love to just pick somebody out right now, just cold turkey and just, I'm not going to do it, but I'm thinking about it, about the joy of serving Jesus, right? Giving your life for other people, using your gifts, getting involved, that's what, that is what the church is all about. We need one another. Here's the deal. If you say tomorrow or next month or next year, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that spiritual discipline. I'm going to get to that point where I join a team and I start serving. And listen, that next month or that next year or that next commitment may never, ever come. Right? Habits have to begin intentionally. So we've created these real, really nice um, brochures that have all of our ministries. Every single ministry that we have here at Summit... There's a description, there's a breakdown of roles, there's a a contact person, team lead, email, phone, you name it. Well, yeah, phone number's in there, you can call them. So um, yeah, you can can email them, you can call them, and uh, we want you to get connected, all right. Maybe the phone wasn't a great idea, but oh well, here we go. (laughs) Just email those ministry leaders, all right. So, if you're not plugged in, next steps brochure, next steps table, grab one. Limited supply, man. They're really hot this morning. They may go, so you better hurry. I mean, hot off the press, I'm telling you. You might wanna go now. All right. One more announcement. Is everybody doing okay? Does everyone have a chair? First Sunday can kinda get kinda crowded, right? Are Are we okay? Here's the deal. If, if we see people come in late, we're going to first, we're going to shame them, okay? <laughs> Why are you late? And then we're going to do the SOS, scoot over some. So actually, if you could, if you could do something for me, if you, if you feel like you want to, maybe like if there's some gaps, maybe fill in the gaps a little bit. I think we're good. I think we're good. But all right, here we go. All right, you guys ready to dive into the Gospel of John? Yeah. Let's go. Guess what? We are finally in chapter 2 of John, let's go, all right. I think we got like 75 more messages in the gospel of John. All right. John chapter 2, here we go. John chapter 2, Jesus turning water into wine. And I know where some of you are going. And we are going to go there, we are going to go there. All right, John chapter 2, here we go, pull out a copy of God's Word. John chapter 2, 1 to 12. Here we go. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Stop there, real quick. Jesus, the agent of creation, the eternal Son, the Son of God, God in human flesh, was invited to a wedding. How many wedding invites do you get? He got, he got wedding invites, all right? When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? I think he said it with a better tone, probably. That's his mom. Not gonna be mean to his mama. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Wisdom right there. Now, there were, there, there were six stone Drawn the water new. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. All right, we're going to look at the first miracle that Jesus performed. Did you know that when you kind of look at the four gospels and you kind of piece it together, which by the way, there are some really, really helpful books on that. John MacArthur wrote one book called One Perfect Life. And what he does is he takes the... We believe that the gospel of Matthew was written first, the first gospel. So based on Matthean priority authorship, um, he builds a chronology of the life and ministry of Jesus based on the gospel of Matthew. And uh, kind of weaves everything in in, in, uh, in a very systematic way. It is an awesome book. One perfect life. I would recommend you getting that or getting something like that. So we know, based on the gospel accounts, he starts his public ministry at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, let me remind you of the purpose of John's gospel. At some point, I'm gonna stop reminding you of the purpose of John's gospel, but we're still early on. Here it is, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word signs is John's word for miracles. Here's the purpose. He gives us the purpose. It's clear. It's crystal clear. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. In the Greek, it's, it's Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one. The Jewish people had been anticipating his arrival for centuries. John is saying, listen, he is the one. He's the one that you've been anticipating. He's the one that you've been looking forward to seeing. He is the long-awaited Messiah. John declares he's the son of God. But it's not just a declaration. He wants us to do something about it. He says... By believing, you may, have, you may have life in his name. If you believe in Jesus, you have life. Not just the abundant life that God grants to us for however many years God gives us. 60, 70, 80, 90 years at best. But this life is eternal. Our soul has been purchased by God. We have been redeemed. We will live for eternity in the presence of our Savior. So that by believing we may have life in his name. If you believe in Christ, you will have life through Jesus. Not through your works. Not through your self-righteousness. Not through your own performance. Not not by, you know, coming to church, getting baptized, giving money to the poor. You, when you come to Christ, he changes you from the inside out. When you encounter the living Christ, he, he forgives you. He adopts you into the family of God. He cleans you. He washes you. He begins a new work in you. This is the work of God. And so as believers, we believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe the testimony of the apostles. That Jesus indeed is the son of God. They Walked with him, they saw him, they heard him, they, they saw him perform these miracles. But John said, Listen, by believing you may have life. The word believe is the word for faith, it's, it's more than intellectual assent. It means to trust, it means to rely upon, it means to, to lean on. Are you leaning, or are you relying on Jesus? Now, John calls miracles signs and these sign miracles are are meant to point to something each miracle in the gospel of John points us to the deity of Jesus the godhood that Jesus is god the miracles weren't just signs there was a there was another layer another layer to the meaning every miracle addressed a problem often the miracles were performed by Jesus to address a pain in someone's life It's amazing to to me to see his his interactions with people. People that were blind, and he opened their eyes to see. They were deaf from birth, and then they could hear. People were lame, and then they could walk, and they could run. People that were mute could speak. He healed the lepers, removed the leprosy. It's amazing. He brought people back, uh, back to life again. He, he often used a miracle to prove his deity but also to get involved in people's lives to address a pain to perform a miracle to bring comfort and healing in someone's life. Jesus was always moved with compassion. You know what? You know what Jesus did? He was always throwing people into the sphere of his love. He was always, you know, he didn't repel people, he attracted people. He attracted sinners. And and brokenness, people who had a past, he attracted those kind of people. When you look at the landscape of the four gospels, you have at least 37 miracles. Only seven miracles are recorded by John. In chapter 2, we're looking at it today, water's turned into wine. Chapter 4, the healing of a sick son. Chapter 5, the paralytic by the pool. Chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. Also in chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. Chapter 9, a boy that's born blind. Chapter 11, I think it's the pinnacle of all, of all miracles, the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus intentionally waits three days and he goes because he wanted to make sure Lazarus was really dead. And according to rabbinic tradition, the, the, the soul left the body on the third day. Jesus wanted to make sure and, and prove to everyone that indeed Lazarus, his close friend, was truly dead and he brought him back to life. Each miracle, each sign is pointing to something greater. It's pointing to something that we need to know about who Jesus is. Let's, let me get one thing out of the way. Chapter 2 of the Gospel of John gives us the first sign, gives us this, this miracle, right? Now, let's talk about um, alcohol. I thought about digging into the story and then later in the, in the story maybe kind of unpacking it, but... Let's address it very. Let's let's address it first, because I know sometimes people are wondering. So, what does the Bible say about drinking alcohol? Well, there are three main views when it comes to drinking alcohol. Number one, the um, prohibitionists. These are people that say alcohol is a sin. It's it's a sin in the Bible, and there is no freedom to ever drink alcohol. Okay. Now, here's the problem with this view. Um, If you hold to this view, which, by the way, I held to this view years ago. I mean, I was anti-alcohol. I was a fighter. I'd fight my family. I'd fight friends on it. I mean, I was a fighter, man. But you know what? I was very immature. I was lacking spiritual maturity and wisdom and discernment and understanding that it's not always black and white. There are gray areas, and that's when freedom and liberty kicks in. So this view, you know, alcohol is a sin, there's no freedom. Well, here, here's, the, here's the problem. The problem with that is Jesus, The problem you have a problem with Jesus because he consumed it, he produced it, and he shared alcohol at a public wedding. This is the story we're going to look at. So here's what I would say. Submit yourself to the scriptures... Don't force the scriptures to submit to you. Submit yourself to the truth of God's word, right? Don't go beyond what the Bible says. I'm also, I'm always leery of like people who are like, well, the Bible says this. And I'm like, where does it say that? I've never heard that before, right? Make sure that you're not going Beyond the words of Jesus, beyond the words of the apostles, beyond the words of inspired scripture. Because here's the deal. If you do, you fall into a legalistic camp. You can become a Pharisee. The Pharisees, it was all about the external appearance. It's about the phylacteries. It's about them looking just spiritually good. And they got the robes and the tassels. And all the externals are check, 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 check. They just look good. They got that perfect resume, but inside, Jesus knew inside, they were like rotting dead men's bones. They were far away from God. So that's the first view. Um, Second view, abstentionists, right? This view says you're free to drink, but at times, or I should say it more directly, you're free to drink, but you should give up your freedom. You should give up your freedom for others at all times. Now, there are some principles, taking a big deep breath here. Okay, here we go. Um, I think there are some principles that govern this, that speak about this, right? Um, there's one principle in the book of Romans that clearly says, don't be a stumbling block. Don't cause another brother or sister in Christ to, to stumble, right? Um, if you're going to give up alcohol, right, you should do it out of love. Let me read Romans 14, 13 to 15. It says, therefore, so for sake of time, we can't go back and look at the keyword therefore, what it's connected to. But basically in chapter 14, Paul is just making this very tight-knit argument about strong believers, weak believers. And the stronger reaches to, reaches to the weaker and about spiritual maturity and, you know, one says, hey, I can eat this. The other person says, I can't eat that. Um, or, hey, I can worship Jesus on this day. I can't. I got to worship Jesus on this day, right? Sunday versus Saturday or, or meat versus no meat or what have you. And then he builds his argument and he gets to this point and he says, therefore, based on everything that I've said, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Well, there's a lot of passing judgment on this issue. Is there not? We pass a lot of judgment. We look down upon people. Oh, if you know, if they were wise, if they loved Jesus like I love Jesus, they would hold to my view. Paul's like, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Let me stop there real quick. So the Corinthians, there was a lot of issues about, you know, going and buying meat at the temple. And some believers were like, I'm going to the temple because they make good barbecue. And that's, that's where I'd be. I'm going to the temple because they, there's good barbecue over there, right? And other believers were like, no, I can't go there because they're taking that meat. And they're barbecuing, they're sacrificing that meat to idols. And Paul's like, listen, there's only one God. So Paul's basically saying, hey, according to your conscience, right? And he's kind of tapping into that again, right? He's talking about how really there's nothing really unclean. We, we could go into Peter's vision and Acts, but so we know nothing is really unclean, okay? For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So there's this principle of don't be a stumbling block. Well, what does that look like? Well, if I know someone in my oikos, in the church family, in my own personal immediate family that struggles with alcohol, and I invite them over to my house for a barbecue, I'm not going to have alcohol on the table. If they're a believer and they're really battling that struggle, that stronghold in their life. It's a stronghold. And that the enemy's got a foothold in their life on this issue, right? And so I'm not gonna serve that because I don't wanna be a hindrance. I don't wanna be a stumbling block. I don't wanna be the reason for my brother or my sister in Christ that I love dearly, for them to fall back into sin and, and be consumed with, with with that problem. Okay, so stumbling block. Um, drinking is also directly related to our conscience. A um, few verses later, Romans 14, 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned to be eats. Because the eating is not from, from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That's really clear. If you can't do it according to faith. If you can't do it like in good conscience, you shouldn't do it. Here's point number three, moderationists. The moderationists say drinking alcohol is not a sin. As long as it's in moderation, as long as it's not in excess. And those who hold this view, this is where I'm at. This is not a black and white issue. This is a gray area. This is when liberty kicks in, right? Now, I'll tell you what is black and white, getting drunk. Getting drunk is black and white. The scriptures are so clear on this issue. In the Old Testament, Solomon talks about looking at the the strong drink and the power that strong drink has over your life. It's clearly a sin, right? The New Testament talks about do not be drunk, right? But be filled with the Spirit. We're gonna look at that in a moment. Drunkenness is a sin. That's clear in the Bible because the Bible says be alert, be sober minded, be controlled by the Spirit. So if you say it's okay to partake and drink in moderation, you have to keep in mind the stumbling block principle. And sometimes you're going to give up your freedom because you love someone else. Jesus drank alcohol and he never sinned. Right? People, I mean, people want to make arguments, well, it wasn't like the same alcohol. Here's the deal. We're not even going to go there. Okay? But we just know, we just know that um, there was wine Back in the day, right? The Bible is very clear. Obey, obey the laws of the land, and we should obey what the scripture teaches. Here's another principle to keep in mind. When it comes to alcohol or any other gray area, whether that's observing a holiday. Do you observe this holiday or that holiday, right? Here's here's the principle. You can receive, you can reject, or you can redeem it. What do I mean by that? Well, let's connect it to alcohol. You can receive it. So like something in the scriptures on this teaching of alcohol, right, you, you can do it. There's, there's moderation there, according to my view. Now, you can, some things you, you can reject. You can't do it. It's very clear. It's not even an option. It's just, it's just sin. It's wrong. Or you can redeem. And what that means is you can take something that's been corrupted and polluted in the culture And you can redeem it, right? There's a a way to redeem that, to enjoy, to use, to steward that. And that can be applied to so many things. Alcohol, holidays, the list goes on and on and on. I like Richard Baxter, what he said. He was a Puritan pastor. He said, in necessary things, unity. In doubtful things, liberty. In all things, charity. That's good, right? Right? necessary things, the essentials of the faith, contending for the faith that was been, that's been once and for all handed down to the saints, we got to seek unity. we got to be on the same pace doctrinally, theologically, but when it comes to doubtful things, gray areas, there's got to be liberty. There's got to be liberty, but in all our actions, in all our, 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 our doings, right, it, there has to be charity. There has to be love for one another. When you encounter... A gray area ask yourself these questions does it build me up spiritually right does it does it build you up spiritually does it bring you under its power does it bother your conscience remember how we read that verse if you can't do it in faith don't do it Um, can it cause another believer to stumble is it specifically forbidden When we come across principles, truths in the Bible where it's specifically forbidden, I want you to see, it's like Jesus holding the trump card. If you ever played Rook, right, the the trump card, and it's everything, right? Jesus throws the trump card down. He has the final say. Because truth is not subjective. Truth is fixed. Truth is not, you know, invented. It's discovered in the Bible. So the Bible has the trump card. Is it specifically forbidden? Will it lead me into temptation? Will it hurt my body? Is it habit forming? Now, even though I hold to the, the third view, I went from one to three. I mean, hmm. Boy, man, I was against it. But now I'm like in, in moderation, you can't say it's a sin. I'm not going to go beyond scripture, right? But I think drinking, like a lot of other issues, it's a wisdom issue. Is it wise to do it, right? Me me personally, I like fluids way too much. I just do. I like water. I like Coke. Down with Pepsi. Like up up on Coke, right? Down, if you're a Pepsi drinker, down on you, right? You need to get converted and meet Jesus, right? Coca-Cola all the way, baby. Coca-Cola is going to be on the new heavens and the new earth. Pepsi ain't got a chance, my friend. All right. Is it habit forming? All right. Is it a hindrance to my Christian life? Would Christ do it? Would the Lord be pleased? That's a good one to ask yourself. Would the Lord be pleased if I engage in this or engage in that? Can I do it for God's honor and glory? Would I want to be doing it when Christ comes back? That's a good one. Can I trust Can I witness for Christ while doing it? Oh, man, those are good. All right. So here's the deal. Drinking too much alcohol can be an area of compromise. The Bible doesn't forbid alcohol, but this can become a problem within your life. Is alcohol in your life occasional, regular, needed, demanded, consuming? If you say yes to some of those, you cannot say you don't have a problem. Well, people say, well, it makes me relax, right? It helps me escape my problems. That's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Sometimes we choose something to, like, check out of life, right? As opposed to taking something and, like, it changing our emotions and our thoughts and our, our um, who we are. We need to bring those problems and everything to the Lord. Alcohol can become a crutch to escape reality. And... Um, we, we, we should only have one crutch, and that's to lean upon Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He said, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's indictment on the people was twofold. My people have committed two evils. Number one, they've abandoned me. And number two, they're in search of something better. But there isn't anything better. Right? Jeremiah is saying that God is the source of living waters. He's the source of life and joy and peace. But here's what we try to do. We try to satisfy and quench our thirst with broken cisterns that cannot guarantee lasting satisfaction. We, we go to broken cisterns like pleasure. We think alcohol, sex, drugs, the weekend, maybe retirement, and retiring in luxury will make us happy. We, we chase for performance. We think success produces satisfaction. You know, a lot of successful people are unsatisfied on the inside. And that's why many people commit suicide. They climb the ladder of success. They get these big, massive, uh, big wins in their life, but they're still empty inside. Because they don't know Jesus. People are chasing possessions thinking that if I get that, if I buy that, if I get that new gadget, it will bring me happiness. No, it will not. Max Lucado said, we are very thirsty. Oh, not thirsty for fame, possessions, passion or romance. We've drunk from those pools. They are salty water in the desert. They don't quench, they kill. God's word is so clear on this issue. You know, I I was going to kind of unpack a little bit. Okay, I'm just going to unpack it really quick. Ephesians chapter 5, 18 to 20. I'm going to have to like skip some of my notes for sake of time, but let me read this for you. This is what the New Testament says. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at this verse, you know, what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? The word filled means to be controlled, to be permeated, to be intoxicated, to be thoroughly influenced. The word filled in the Greek, it's a present tense imperative, which means it's, um, number one, it's a command. It's a command. Nowhere does God say be indwelt, be sealed, be baptized, but God does say be filled. Filled with the Spirit. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. And check this out. If God commands it, it's doable. Here's another thing. The feeling happens to us by God. The verb filled is passive, which means God is the source of the feeling. We are the object of the action. God is the one who does the feeling. It is his power working through us. It is not my power. It is his power. We are the object. He is the one who is filling us with his spirit. The filling is available for everyone. In the Greek it's plural, which means many, right? So there's not like, you know, little saints, super saints. No, there's just saints. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're a saint. You're a child of God. You can be filled with the spirit of God. The filling should be ongoing. The verb is present tense continuous in action. So literally, Paul is telling the church at Ephesus, be filled and be filled and be filled and be filled. It is an ongoing reality. And so that should be our prayer. Every day, God, fill me today. Fill me today, God. All right, so, long introduction. Didn't want to preach that long on that, but here we go. John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here we go. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So, if you know anything about the topography of Israel, Cana is a very small town in the northern region of Galilee. Very small town, four miles north of Israel. Several years ago, we took a group of people to Israel uh, to go see the Holy Land, to walk where Jesus walked. And um, it was a life-changing experience for me. And uh, Lord willing, if the Lord tarries and uh, there's more peace in the land of Israel, I look forward to bringing a group back there to see the land. But I remember we were on this bus. There was a lot of people on this bus. And we were making our way uh, to the northern region of Galilee. And um, my wife's uncle, uh, my spiritual mentor, Pastor Roger Spradlin... He was, uh, he turned and he said, Elisha, he said, get ready. He said, we're getting ready to, um, to drive into Cana of Galilee. And of course, the first thought that came into my mind was Jesus' public ministry. Started at a wedding. He was invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And so I was ready, man. I was sitting there and we're driving and I'm seeing some houses and a little bit of structure. And, and all of a sudden, literally, like 15 seconds later, we're, we're like, we're beyond the town. And I look at Pastor Raj and I said, was that it? He said, that was it. Cane <laughs> of Galilee, man. Such a small little village, right? And so even back in the day, the villages were anywhere from 50 to 75 people um, in these small rural villages. Let me ask you this question. What is your image of Jesus? How do you see Jesus? I'm not talking about, let's move away from his identity, his nature, who the Bible clearly states that he is. Fully God, fully man, okay? Let's tap into the humanity side for a moment. Have you ever just stopped and thought about Jesus being fully man? The book of Hebrews says that he walked in our shoes. He was tempted in every way. So here's the deal. There's no temptation that you have gone through that Jesus did not go through. He was tempted in every way but without sin. The sinless Savior walked in your shoes. He understands what it's like to be human. You know that, um, um, I don't know the name of the company, but uh, the commercials and the billboards, he gets us. A few years ago, I saw that on Super Bowl, and um, I don't know, honestly, I don't know much about this nonprofit, but um, from kind of what I've seen, it, it seems legit. You could correct me later. Um, I haven't done a lot of research on it, but it seems evangelical, and I love, I just, I love the messaging. He gets us. Like, and their messaging is unique. Um, it's very, it's wordcrafted. It causes people to kind of wonder. About Jesus, about him being human. And so when I think about Jesus, what, what is, how do you see him? What is your image of Jesus? Like, I think Jesus was a humorous guy. I think Jesus had a fun personality, right? Here's the deal children know if you're the real deal or not, don't they? We don't give a lot of credit to children and teenagers. But you know what? They can sniff out phony any day of the week. They can sniff it out, man. They, can, they call it out too. I mean, I got four teenagers, man. They're, they're calling stuff out. I'm like, wow, Like I didn't, even, I didn't even see that. I didn't even catch that, right? I mean, they, they're dialed in. They see things that us grown adults, we don't see. Sometimes. Sometimes. Jesus was loved by the children. The child, I, mean, I, I just have mental images of these children running up to Jesus. On one occasion, Jesus told his disciples, don't hinder the little children from coming to me. Jesus, the, the children were drawn to him. You know, I think about Jesus, okay, humor, fun personality. Can you see, do you ever picture Jesus as laughing? Laughing. You know, he had to have had a really good time. Especially with these disciples. I mean, especially with Peter. I mean, I just, I, just, I just wonder if, you know, Jesus had to have just gotten a good chuckle sometimes with Peter. You know, Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth, saying things he shouldn't say. You know, I, I, I envision Jesus as um, making jokes. You know, one of the fruits of the spirit is joy. That's a fruit of the spirit. That's, that's a mark that the Holy Spirit lives within you. That God is doing a transforming work in your life. Right? If we should have joy, if this is a mark of, of um, if this is a characteristic of, of, of a believer. Someone who's walking in the spirit. Jesus was filled with the spirit. He was empowered by the spirit. Jesus had joy. Jesus had humor and a great personality. I mean, Jesus was invited to this wedding. And not only was he invited, the the other five disciples that he has picked up along the way, they were invited as well. I like to say it this way. Jesus was the original party animal. He was the original party animal. Jesus knew what it was like to party, right? You know, and sometimes as Christians, we don't have a lot of joy. We walk around defeated, you know, like the world is it's caving in, and what are we going to do? It's like doom and gloom, man. Here's the deal. We know how the story ends. Amen. Jesus wins, amen. He wins. Oh, man, I need to say that more to get a few more claps. And guess what? If you're Team Jesus, you're going to win. Me and Carlos were talking about that this week. You know, he was like, Pastor, he's like, why do people get all just like hung up on like, oh my goodness, the, the world's going to hell in a handmask. Well, have you read the end of the book? Like, that? yeah, that's what's going to happen. You know, there's prophetic language, the book of Revelation. We got Daniel. We got, we got books that tell us, here's what's coming down the pipe. Get ready. Jesus was invited to weddings. I think Jesus was a guy that a lot of people wanted to hang out with. I don't think People wanted to hang out with the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were self-righteous, they were hypocritical, and they looked down upon people. They were superior. They had this superior smugness to them. Listen, the gospel, man, you guys are getting kind of vocal today. I'm kind of like, I don't know what to do with it, man. I don't know, I'm like, I, what do I do with this? Listen, I lost my train of thought. Okay, that's what I was going to say. The gospel, the gospel is going to be offensive. Your life should not be offensive. How you interact with people, your tone, how you treat them, especially when you have power over them. How you treat them. Are you you displaying Christ in your life? I think Jesus, I think people want to hang out with him. He was party animal. Started his public ministry at a wedding. There's so much more I can say about that. Um, let, me, let me just, let, let's move on. Verses 3 and 5. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And I love this story because it's the first miracle That Jesus performs in public and it's at a wedding. It's connected. I heard someone say this um, in study. It's connected to the home. I never really thought about that. I just I got very like focused on wedding, wedding. It was a wedding, right? But it was it's bigger than a wedding. It was connected to a home, it was connected to family. It was connected to a celebration. This miracle was connected to the family, to the home, not the temple. Jesus attended the the ceremony, right? So he was validating like the marriage ceremony and and taking vows. He attended the ceremony. In in Ephesians chapter 5, we know that marriage is a picture of the gospel. As, as, As husbands, we're called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Unconditional love, sacrificial love, a servant kind of love, right? An agape love. We we sacrifice for the needs of our spouse. But then the wife, and that's what Jesus did for the church. He gave himself for the church. Ultimate sacrifice. He paid the ultimate price. So we might know him. We might be forgiven by him. We might be loved by him. And then the wife is to respect and follow the spiritual leadership of her husband. Not a husband who's a dictator, but a husband who leads as a servant. Who cares more about her needs than his needs. That is a man. That any woman would follow. And the wife does that because that's how the church is to Christ. This is why Paul said marriage is a mystery. Marriage kind of is a mystery at times, especially when opposites attract and they get married. It could be a real funny thing, right? But it is a mystery. But the mystery is is because of the gospel, it points to the gospel. Your marriage is a reflection of the gospel. How you treat one another is a reflection of the gospel. Right? Your commitment in your marriage is a reflection of the gospel. The mercy, the compassion, the forgiveness that you extend is a reflection of the gospel. You don't stay married because you're in love. You know, these reality shows. I'm in love. I just met this person two hours ago, but I'm in love. It's like, what? Love is more. Than, love is more than a feeling. It's it's, it's it's a daily choice, daily commitment, year after year after year. And you choose to love. You choose to be faithful. Because God, because Christ was faithful to us, so we want to model that in our marriage. When it comes to Jewish marriages, they were arranged. Then there was this betrothal period, and. It was such a binding contract to end the betrothal period, it literally took a divorce to end the marriage. Based on uh, Jewish culture and just marriages, uh, virgins were married on Wednesdays. Uh, The bridegroom and the friends would go to the bride's home, and they would often go at night carrying torches, and it would be this huge parade, and they would arrive to the bride's home, and they would give speeches. And then there would be another procession, and they would head to the bridegroom's home. And there they would have the marriage feast. Now, it wasn't just a one meal, kind of a one and done type deal. Like we do like marriage ceremony, reception, bam, right? It's over. No, like it lasted for an entire week, seven days. If you were wealthy, it would often last for two weeks. So the first miracle is performed not at a funeral, but at a wedding, not during a fast, but during a feast. During a celebration. Now look at verses 6 to 10. It says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, waters, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, "Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now." You know, I find it amazing that uh, there was this issue. They run out of wine, and uh, honestly, we don't we don't have all the details. But we know that Jesus' mother, Mary, was there. And um, Jesus is age 30. Uh, He's been a carpenter, most likely working with his father. And, um, you know, calloused hands, blue-collar worker. And he begins his public ministry at age 30. And, And Mary, the Bible says that from the very beginning, she believed that she was chosen by God. That that she was giving birth, she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She was fully aware of this miraculous consumption, this by the Holy Spirit, and this miraculous birth. She knew Jesus. I mean, even when he was like twelve years old, and they went to Jerusalem for the Passover, and uh, they lost Jesus. Remember the story? Like there, that's only we only have one boyhood story of Jesus. Now, if you read the Apocrypha, which I would recommend you not reading because it's not Bible, it's not Scripture, right? It's it's um. It's a bunch of made-up garbage. I'm just, there it is, right? Um, And there's a lot of reasons for that. And so I, I can explain to you why we don't hold the Apocrypha as scripture, like the Gospel of John or Book of Romans or Book of Revelation. But the Apocrypha has these fanciful stories of what Jesus did when he was a boy, which is not true. It's absolutely not true. The Bible the Bible gives us one boyhood story, and that is Mary and Joseph thought Jesus was with them when they were leaving the Passover, the temple, and they're like, they're like gone like three days or a day in, I think maybe it was a day in, something like that, and they realize Jesus is not with us, and they, and they go back and, and they find him, and he has this conversation, they have this conversation with him about his, about his father's business, and absolutely blew their mind. Now... It's a real problem. You have a real problem if you're mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, and you lose God. That's a real problem. It's a real problem. Real problem, okay? But um, Mary, she pondered and treasured these things in her heart from the very beginning. Mary believed. She was waiting. She knew. She knew that he was God, that he was the Messiah, and he had, he had the, the, the power um, to perform these miracles. But I like what she, she does. She comes to Jesus, and she basically says, they're, they're out of wine. And Jesus basically says, woman, but it literally means lady or, or ma'am. And he says, what does that have to do with me? And when he speaks about the hour has not come... He's really speaking about like people identifying, realizing that he is the Messiah. This is the beginning of the ministry. It was too premature. There was a ministry. There was miracles. There was teaching. There was some things that he had to fulfill in uh, the lifetime of his ministry before, before everything was completely unveiled. But Mary knew. Mary knew that Jesus had the power to bring about wine for this family. And um, he performs this miracle. And um, they, bring the, uh, they bring the wine to the family. And uh, here's, here, here's the principle. I think the principle for me, and I think the principle applies for all of us. Jesus gets involved in the details of our lives. He cares about your problems. He cared about the, the problem that day. Like, you don't understand, in Jewish culture, to run out of wine, if you do the calculation, there's 120 to 180 gallons in the six jars. Empty, right? He tells them, fill it with water. He doesn't touch the jars. I mean, he had the power. He was God. He could have snapped his finger. He could have spoke. Boom. But he tells them, fill up the jars. 120, 180 gallons of water, and it's turned into wine as they're drawing the water. And it's turned into wine, and they bring it to the master of the feast. And the master of the feast is blown away. Because like he said, typically the best wine is served first because people are going to taste it. And then as they've drank in quite a bit, they, you know, they don't recognize that, that they're getting bad wine served later, right? And the whole point was Jesus brings the best. He brings, wait, he waits to bring the best to last And it it reminds me that Jesus cares about our problems. He cares about the pain that we're in. He cares about our frustrations. And sometimes, you know, we cry out to God and we ask God to intervene. Sometimes he doesn't remove that. Sometimes we have to learn through adversity and and struggles, the struggles of life, so that God can um, make us more Christ-like and refine our character and make us more like him. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, this, the first of the signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is the first of the signs, John says. He turns water into wine by his, by his spoken word, by his power. Jesus performs this miracle. And he did it in Cana of Galilee, a very small rural town. And notice what John said. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Two quick takeaways. Number one, the first sign illustrates is a sign. It points to who Jesus is. He's a miracle-working God. God can do big things. God can do impossible things. Not just at this wedding. He can do impossible things in your life. There are roadblocks. He can remove the roadblocks. Right? You you just feel like all hope is lost. Your future is hopeless. It's bleak. What can God do? How how can God work? How can God restore maybe this relationship? How can God fix this problem? Listen, God specializes in doing the impossibilities. If we just simply trust him, if we give him the jars, if we just say, God, okay, geez, here are the jars. Do a miracle because, because I can't do it. You've got the wonder-working power. It proves that he's the son of God, but it also proves that he, he cares about the little details of our lives. He cared about this family. He cared about the wedding. To run out of wine was a complete embarrassment In Jewish culture, you could be sued by the family and friends. It was a big, gnarly deal. Hospitality, wine, food, it was all connected. It was intimacy, it was community, it was fellowship, it was relationship building. This was a big deal. He cared about this couple and he cared about this family. And maybe, just maybe, we don't know the details, but Mary's the one who comes to him. Mary's the one who's asking Maybe he was connected to a family member. And Mary said, Jesus, you got, it's it's time for you to show up. You got to do something here. Because I believe you could do this. It says that his disciples believed. They believed. So as we walk through the gospel of John, let's just be reminded he's the Son of God. And he specializes in doing the impossibilities of our lives. And let's trust him and let's believe him for that, knowing that he can do big things. Let's pray.